All right. Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to Bible Quest, the Tuesday edition. Uh, I'm your host, Jonathan Sadler. Uh, we've been periodically moving through the Gospel of Mark, and we're in Mark chapter six now. Uh, and we're in this section in Mark chapter six and verse seven, where uh, what Mark's going to do, at least how I kind of understand these next sections, is kind of fill in a little bit of the, the blanks of the history of what's happened so far in Jesus's ministry. So he'll go back and kind of talk about uh, the, the 12 apostles and then being sent. Uh, and then also fill in some of the history of what happened with John the Baptist, because uh, Mark didn't, he, he mentioned that John got arrested in Mark chapter one, but he didn't really tell the story. And so he'll start to, to tell that in Mark chapter six. But first we've got this section here where Jesus sends out his 12 apostles, something that he does in, uh, in all of the gospels. And it gives a little bit of information in Mark as well. So Mark chapter six, verse seven says, and he called the 12 and he began to send them out two by two. And he gave them authority over the unclean spirits. And he charged them to take nothing for their journey, except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and to not put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any, uh, if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that the people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. Okay, so um, there are a few different things maybe to kind of notice here in this text. Um, what, what do you want to talk about here, Scott? This is a real minor point, but let's go ahead and get it out of the way. Um, there's another text in James that mentions asking the elders to come and anoint with oil. Mm -hmm. We'll speculated what that means. Um, one speculation has been that it was medicinal, and people have compared it to Luke 10, where the man that's been beat up, the mm -hmm. Samaritan put oil and wine on his wounds. Yep. Uh, I think this is really the passage that better explains James 5 than the other. Mm -hmm. um, putting oil and wine on a wound, you can understand the point of that. That's not sickness, an open wound from a, you know, from a club or a rock is different than an inner sickness. Mm -hmm. And in James, the word is anoint. Mm -hmm. That's mm -hmm. not it. And that's what we've got here, miraculous power. And it involved anointing with oil. Yeah. And so I'd say that's also what you've got in James 5. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. Good connection. So as a James 5, what is that verse? Uh, I think right 16. around verse 16 or so. Yeah. Yeah. So um, to connect that. So that's good. Um, but yeah, what, what Jesus does here, there's a couple of interesting things that, that Jesus does. So he gets his 12 guys, um, which were already introduced in the Gospel of Mark. That was, you know, Peter, Andrew, James, John, Matthew, all, all those guys that he called. And they were kind of the special followers that were going to be commissioned to be his people after Jesus left from earth. And here he sends them out kind of on their own for a little bit. So a lot of the time when we see the apostles, they're with Jesus, but Jesus sends them out kind of on their own. And some of the other gospels will say like why Jesus did that. He would send them on ahead to prepare some cities for like where Jesus himself was going to go to, um, which is what they were going to have to do anyway after Jesus left. But how he does that, I think is kind of interesting. He gets them all together and it says in verse seven that he sent them out two by two. Um, so you've got, you know, six groups, uh, six groups of two that are going out. 
that's kind of interesting. We'll talk about this, and I've heard you talk about this before, Scott. Why would it be important that Jesus sends them out two by two instead of just sending them in 12 different directions? Oh, yeah. And, and of course, Paul will follow this. Paul and Barnabas will be commissioned to go out. And when Paul and Barnabas split up, Barnabas takes somebody, Paul takes somebody. And the one time we see Paul go ahead alone to Athens, he says, Timothy and Silas, get here quick. So just naming some reasons, I'll name one, you name one, we'll go back and forth. Uh, one for encouragement. Mm -hmm. um, you look at Elijah, you know, and the, he's discouraged because he's all alone. If he'd had a buddy out there with him, it wouldn't have been his heart on. Yeah, yeah. Another kind of reminds me, and this one's kind of reading between the lines, but when you have two different people doing the same work, they can kind of meet different needs. So I think about like Barnabas and Paul. Yeah. <laughs> They're very different people. Um, that fulfilled different purposes for John Mark, <laughs> um, you know, and, uh, you know, John Mark needed Paul, but John Mark also needed Barnabas in the at different points in his life. And so yeah. when you have two different men going together, they can cover more bases. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it, it's like a, a, on a football team or a basketball team. You don't need every player to have the same yeah. skill set. Mm -hmm. um, and, and it helps to have more skill sets. Yeah. Uh, another one can help to be uh, safety. There's safety mm -hmm. in numbers. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And this is kind of interesting to think about this pattern that Jesus sets up when sending out his 12, his 12 apostles. There is um, a, an idea floating around in Christianity that, you know, my Christianity, my religion is between me and God. I don't need anyone else. I don't need the church. I don't need anyone to help me. And when you read through the scriptures, you won't find that anywhere, that, that kind of attitude of kind of a solo religion. Um, we need each other. We need each other's help, specifically in doing the Lord's work, but also just in day-to-day -day life, um, you know, bearing one another's burdens and so fulfilling the law of Christ in Galatians 6 and verse 2. So, um, you know, we, we really need each other. And I like that Jesus, when he sends out his apostles, he doesn't send them out all alone. He sends them together, two by two, to the places that they're going. Yeah. Um, but he gives them, go ahead. Go ahead, Scott. More things. Uh, it can help with accountability. Mm -hmm. Because uh, we all need, you know, uh, Proverbs talks about the, 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 the wise man listens to the correction of a friend. And if you don't have a friend there to correct you, you're, you're kind of missing something. Mm -hmm. And also, just like if you and I went fishing, if you and I are fishing and I'm fishing out of the right side of the boat, nothing's biting. I'm going to give up. Mm -hmm. But if we're fishing and nothing's biting for me, but you're getting a bite. I'm encouraged to keep going, you know, and you've got fish coming in over there later. Maybe you're not getting a bite, but I am. And yeah. so if you're going to be fishers of men, it helps to have more than one fisherman. Yep. In fact, Andrew and uh, uh, Peter, mm -hmm. you know, fished together, James and John fished yep. together and they were partners together. Yeah. It helps to continue that. Yeah. Yeah. Good points. Yeah. Uh, so I would just say this. I've been involved in a number of planning works, and one of the important things early on is is looking for, you know, uh, good coworkers. Uh, it makes makes a big big difference. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So so that's kind of setting the stage. Jesus sends them all out, but he gives them really kind of curious instructions as he's sending them out. Um, he tells them, "Don't take anything except a staff. Don't take any money. Don't take any food. Don't take a bag." Uh, only take your shoes, only take one tunic, you know, kind of thing. 
Why does Jesus tell him to do that? Uh, luggage restrictions. Oh, yeah, right. Yeah. Um, I, I'm, I'm not sure that I know all the reasons. I suppose it shows a dependence on God. Uh, but also, you see how it plays out. Uh, when they get to Philippi, what does Lydia do after she hears the gospel? Yeah, takes care of them. Yeah, she insists. You guys stay with me. She puts them up and supplies them. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder if there's probably a little bit to do with just relying on God, trusting in God, maybe some of the teaching of Jesus, like in Matthew six, don't, don't worry about what you're going to eat. Don't worry about what you're going to wear. God clothes the grass. He, he feeds the birds. He'll take care of you. Um, but then also there's that practical element to Christianity where believers take care of believers. And that's just a, a precedent that Jesus expected to, for people to follow. That's what we see in the first century church. And that's what we see here in this moment. The instructions that Jesus gives these guys in verse 10 is if you go into a house and they welcome you, stay there. Um, you know, the, the, they'll, they'll take care of you. And as long as they take care of you, great. And once a place won't receive you anymore, go to the next place. Um, what do you think about that in verse 11? Uh, if they're not going to listen to you anymore, they're not going to receive you anymore, shake the dust off of your feet. Um, how does that apply, if at all, to, to us today? You know, I think probably I need to pay better attention to that. Um, that sometimes we can end up wasting time. Uh, the Bible refers to those ever learning, never coming to a knowledge of the truth. Now, I've studied with people some, I remember a guy I studied with for four years until I moved away. But years later, it bore fruit. But uh, sometimes, I, I used to say, I'll study with anybody that'll study with me. And years ago, I realized, no, no, there's some people, they're, they're not really listening. They don't want to obey God's word they're all blown up and what's puffed up in their own mind. And if you can't get them out of that, it's better to move on. Yeah. Yeah. And maybe one of the things to think about is um, Jesus has promised that there will be different types of people. Some people will hear and listen and understand and want to know, and some people won't, and we'll find those everywhere. Um, but a majority it seems like we'll be the ones that don't listen, that are ever learning, don't come to a knowledge of the truth, that don't want to accept the word of God. And so if we find ourselves in conversations with them, uh, you know, it's not our responsibility to uh, pronounce eternal judgment on them. But if we can talk with somebody else that will listen to the gospel, our time is better spent talking to somebody who will change, who will be affected, who will allow the word of God to be implanted in their hearts, uh, rather than somebody that, that chooses not to listen. Um, it reminds me of kind of what Jesus says in Matthew chapter seven to not cast your pearls before swine. Um, we have really valuable, you know, things that we're, that we're uh, ambassadors for and ambassadors of the truth. And so we should use those well and use our time well in that. And so that's the instructions that Jesus gives to his disciples. A little bit kind of curious, but you can see a lot of the practicality in it and also uh, some of the, the expected results of what Jesus says. And so they go in verse 12, they go out and they proclaim that people should repent the same message that started all the way back in Mark chapter one. And I think this is interesting to just follow through the gospel of Mark. It's always repentance, um, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand here. The apostles go out and they say, repent when Jesus shows up on the scene, repent, <laughs> the kingdom of God is at hand. That, that's, that's the message of the gospel. You need to repent and believe in the gospel, believe in Jesus. And so it stays the same consistently throughout. 
that ties us into the next because repentance is part of it it is easy to water down the gospel and make it just you know joy and peace and eternal life and not expect people to count the cost and repent and here's an example of somebody that needed to admit yes. king herod heard about this for jesus name had become well known some were saying john the baptist is risen from the dead and that is why miraculous powers are at work within him others said he is elijah still others claim he is a prophet like one of the prophets long ago but when herod heard this he said john the man i beheaded has been raised from the dead for herod himself had given orders to have john arrested and he had him bound and put in prison and he did this because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, whom he had married. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So Herodias nursed a grudge against John and wanted to kill him. But she was not able to because Herod feared John and protected him, knowing him to be a righteous and holy man. When Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled yet he liked to listen to him. Finally, the opportune time came. Well, we'll read that in a minute and how, how it ends. Mm -hmm. But what about what about John the Baptist here and here? Yeah, so first, just in the context of Mark, this is a little bit kind of strange where this shows up. The last time that we saw John the Baptist was in Mark chapter one, after he had baptized Jesus and Jesus had gone into the wilderness. Uh, it says in John or in Mark 1, 14, now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee. So you, you kind of, as you're reading Mark 1, you're kind of like, wait, why was John arrested? And you don't get the story until here later on in Mark. And like Scott said, we'll finish up the rest of the story uh, here in just a minute. Um, but as Jesus is growing in popularity, as he's getting a big following, as all these miracles are being performed, uh, Herod hears about it. And some people are saying it's John the Baptist. And... Uh, some people thinking that he's Elijah, not many people are knowing exactly who Jesus is, but Herod is really, really kind of thrown off and put off by that idea of John coming back. Um, and uh, he says, it's, if it's John who I beheaded, um, then we're going to have some problems. And he starts to tell a little bit of the history of what happened between Herod and John. Um, John, it seems like as he was going around, and we don't have a lot of the background of maybe how this worked, but as John was going around and teaching a baptism of forgiveness for the remission of sins and teaching repentance because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Uh, he didn't pull any punches when it came to talking to people in authority either. Um, King Herod was living in sin, uh, publicly living in sin. And so John told him, uh, you need to repent. So he says in verse uh, 18, um, because Herod had married his brother Philip's wife, Herodias, uh, John says in verse 18, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Um, and Herodias didn't like that very much. Um, <laughs> uh, she kind of holds a grudge against him, but it's really interesting just to see, uh, in this moment, uh, we have a few stories of John preaching to different people. Uh, one of them is preaching to like the Pharisees when they would come out to him and he called them a brood of vipers and said, who warmed you to flee from the coming judgment? And don't say that we have your father, Abraham. And so we have that kind of moment where he's teaching, but he didn't just teach to religious 
you know, leaders. He didn't just teach to the common people that came out to him. He also taught to the higher up officials when he had opportunity. And we see that same pattern also with like Paul and the apostles later on um, that whoever they were going to talk to, they were going to tell the gospel to. Um, and I think that's an important lesson for us to see and, and what John does. Not an easy thing to uh, call someone out for their sin and point out that their sin is wrong, um, but John does it. Um, and we'll see what it, what it ends up costing him uh, later on. But uh, Especially when they have the power to do what Herod ends up doing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So um, when John does that, he calls out this illicit marriage, uh, says that it's not lawful for you to be married. Um, Herodias is angry and wants to kill John, but Herod doesn't want to kill him um, because he knows he's a righteous man. He knows he's a holy man and he kind of fears him a little bit. He likes to listen to him um, and his preaching and different things like that and kind of keep him around. So Herod just arrests him um, instead of having him, having him killed like Herodias wants him to do. Uh, but Herodias ends up finding a way to accomplish her will uh, anyway in this whole process. So um, verse 21 says, but an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet and all of his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee were there. And for when Herodias's daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guest. And the king said to the girl, ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, for what should I ask? And her mother said, the head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me the head uh, uh, at once, the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry because he of his oaths that he and his guests, uh, because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. So immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head, and he went in and beheaded him in the prison, and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. And when the disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. Uh, so, um, a lot of lessons I think to learn from here. One, first from Herod's perspective. Um, Herod does something very foolish in this section. Uh, he promises something that he doesn't know what he's promising. <laughs> um, so, you know, Herodias's daughter comes in and, and um, entertains the, the people at his birthday party very well. And so he says, I'll give you anything that you want. And I, and I swear to you, uh, I'll make this oath to you, anything up to half of my kingdom, you can ask for whatever you want. Um, that's exceedingly foolish to say something like that to someone or to make a promise, like an open-ended promise in that way. Because, and you can see it from Herod's reaction, when Herodias' daughter comes back in and asks for John's head, uh, Herod is caught between a rock and a hard place in verse 26. Um, he's very sorrowful because he doesn't want to kill John. He, he appreciates John. He likes John's teaching and things like that. Um, but also now he can't break his word. So what's he going to do? Um, he doesn't want to look bad in front of his guests and the officials. He doesn't want to go back on his word. And so he's got to follow through with what his commitment is uh, here. We can often with our words find ourselves in situations or get ourselves trapped in situations that we could have avoided if we were just more careful with what we say. Um, and uh, I like to think that Herod maybe learned his lesson and, uh, 
and didn't do something so foolish anymore in the rest of his life. But if Herod's anything uh, like I am, I have a short-term memory and I'll continue to keep stepping on myself uh, and stepping on myself with words. We need to learn to master our tongues and not make rash oaths or vows. Um, yeah. And uh, there, are other, there are other stories about that. Like you think about uh, the judge Jephthah. Um, there's some questions around his story, but a similar thing happens to him. He, he promises something that he can't possibly know how that's going to happen. And uh, um, we can just be a really dangerous place to be in if we're not careful with what we say to people and what, we, what promises that we make. We'd be better off following James's instructions um, to instead say, if the Lord wills, we'll do this or that instead of, I promise to you, I'll do this or that. Go ahead, from the biblical record, we can see that Herod does not learn. And uh, at, the, at the trial of Jesus, he'll have his soldiers mock him, and, and Herod will mock him, and different things like that. Yeah. Yeah. What else do you see in that section? So you've got that from, from Herod. you see anything else you want to talk about in there? that we need to stand up for marriage and the fact that not everything that people call marriage is a real marriage before God. Uh, it says that he had married her, but he didn't have a right to marry her. And these are painful and difficult things, but there is a tendency among a lot of people to act like to sweep everything under the rug. Um, don't worry about whether or not uh, things are biblical or right. Uh, and, and the attitude is just like, you know, Jesus is love. And so just let, let people do what they want to do. Um, you see it also in the acceptance of homosexuality and stuff when people say love wins just just but this is this is john the baptist the predecessor of jesus and herod and rhodes might have been happy together mm -hmm. yeah they might have been in love and john takes a stand mm -hmm. yeah yeah and uh Patrick uh, points out that uh, John probably could have preached a hundred different biblical truths that wouldn't have offended Herod uh, and Herodias, but what did he choose to teach on? Um, he chose to teach the truth. Um, and that's not always going to be popular, and that's not always going to be well welcomed, and that's not always going to get you a pat on the back. Sometimes it'll get you thrown in prison. Sometimes it'll cost you your life with John's case, um, but he spoke the truth. Um, and there's just such a huge emphasis in Jesus's ministry on the truth, um, especially in the Gospel of John, uh, when Jesus says in John 8 that uh, his disciples will know the truth and the truth will set them free. Um, we need the truth and we need to follow the truth. And Jesus goes on to say later on in John chapter 17 that God's work is truth. While it's not always the most popular or the best um, thing that everyone wants to hear, um, it is always truth and it always results in freedom from sin. Uh, and if Herod and Herodias would have listened to that, uh, they could have repented and had a much better, um, history to remember than what they're remembered for in this story, um, as being murderers of a righteous man. Uh, so 
that's through uh, that section. Um, so that kind of gets us caught up on some of the history of what's going on in uh, in kind of behind the scenes, uh, and um, that brings us back up to speed and up to date with what happened to John in Mark chapter one. Um, so Mark goes on from there and turns back to Jesus. So we kind of had this aside story to talk about what happened with John and a little bit of lessons from that. But the reason why that side story was told is because Jesus was doing really amazing things, really magnificent things, being seen by so many different people. And uh, he was really impressing a lot of uh, the, the people that were in the region of Judea and Galilee. Uh, including Herod himself. So Mark goes back to Jesus's ministry and some of the things that Jesus was doing. So I'm going to read in Mark 6, starting in verse 30. Uh, it says, and the apostles returned to Jesus and they told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going and they had no leisure even to eat. And, when, uh, and they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them and ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. And when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place and the hour is now late. Send them away and go into surrounding countryside um, and to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said five and two fish. And then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. And so they sat down in groups by hundreds and fifties. And taking the loaves, uh, the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave it to the disciples and set it before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate uh, the loaves were 5,000 men. Um, so we have the story of the feeding of the 5,000, but it first picks up with just the, the narrative. Um, the last place the narrative was talking about, Jesus had sent out the 12 apostles. And so in verse 30, the apostles come back to Jesus and they report everything that's happened. They tell them all the things that, that they had done, all the things that they had taught. And Jesus tells them, okay, let's go away by ourselves and rest a little bit. Um, I think that's helpful that Jesus, you know, notices that the apostles need some rest. And there were different times when Jesus himself needed some rest to go off in a place by himself and pray and different things like that and kind of recollect his thoughts, recollect himself. And so that's what he instructs the apostles to do. Let's go away by ourselves for a little while, because where they were at, there were so many people coming and going, they didn't have time to eat. Uh, it says in verse 31. So they had to eat for themselves. So they get in a boat, they go to a desolate place. Um, but it doesn't work. <laughs> the crowds follow them. They, they see them leaving and get to where they're going before they're able to get there themselves. Um, and then you get a glimpse into another picture of Jesus's compassion and who he really was. I really, really love verse 34, especially when you think about what the context is. Um, the apostles had been working hard. Jesus had been working hard. They're not even able to take a break to eat a meal for themselves because there's so much to do, so many people to, to serve and to tend to. And when Jesus sees more people, uh, he sees the, the great crowd 
um, that's there waiting for him as he comes to shore on the boat. It says he has compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things until it grew late in the day. Um, Jesus is tired. Jesus is hungry. Jesus needs a break. But he's still serving people, even in that moment. And that's just such a wonderful example. It reminds me of two different passages in Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 through around verse 11, where it says that we should do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, esteem others as greater than ourselves, and look out not only for our own interests, but also the interest of others. And Paul says, have that mind in you, which was in Christ Jesus. And here's a story where you can see that mind in Christ Jesus. You can see that in a lot of stories about Jesus. Um, but Jesus was the kind of person that put others before himself always, um, even when he's tired, even when he's hungry. And man, you know, I like to think that I'm pretty good at putting others before myself. Um, but the times when it's hardest to put others before myself are when I'm tired and when I'm hungry. Um, and Jesus does that then too. Um, uh, maybe one of the Proverbs comes to mind too, where it says, if you faint in the day of adversity, your strength indeed is small. If, if you can be selfless when things are going really well, you're not really selfless. <laughs> if you can be selfless when you're tired and you're hungry, then you're really selfless. And I think Jesus illustrates that here. And it also reminds me of um, one of the things that Paul says that he strove to be like to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, when he said, I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. Um, you can see another great example of selfless behavior in the apostle Paul and the things that he chose to do, the rights that he forego, uh, foregoes in his life, and the pain and the, the discomfort that he went through for the sake of other people. Um, and he did that because he was imitating Christ. And so if we want to be Christ people, then we need to do that as well. Um, but that's through verse 34. Um, so I read verse 30 through uh, the end of that story through verse uh, 44. Scott, do you have anything that you want to bring up through that? Yeah, somebody recently pointed out something I'd never noticed, and that was some similarities between this and Psalm 23. You know, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not walk. So notice in verse 34, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Come back to Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I'll not want. He maketh me to lie down. In yeah, green, green pastures. pastures. Notice here, he made them sit down in green mm -hmm. grass. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Not all the accounts mentioned that it was green. This one mentions mm -hmm. green grass. And then he prepares a table before me. Mm -hmm. And uh, so it's interesting comparisons there that seem to call to mind and echo that great 23rd Psalm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, good point. So then we get to the, the miraculous part of this story. It's getting late in the day, and the apostles say, Jesus, send the people away. We've got to eat. They've got to eat. We're in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> um, you know, we, we send them to go get something to eat by themselves. And uh, Jesus' approach to this is really, really interesting. The first thing that he says in verse 37 is, you all feed them. <laughs> so to the apostles, you get this, give them something to eat. Um, I wonder why Jesus did that. Um, I, I think that Jesus knew what he was going to do before he did it. Um, but, but he challenges the apostles' faith 
I think here in this moment, um, maybe also trying to illustrate the impossibility of what was about to happen um, because the apostles immediately realized uh, we can't do that. <laughs> you know, uh, 200 denarii, which would be, uh, what was the denarii? I always get it mixed up. Is denarii a, a day's wage or a year's wage? A day's wage. A day's wage in the parable of the laborers. Yeah, yeah. So, so a day's wage. So 200 days worth of wages, the apostles say, would not be enough <laughs> to feed this group of people. And we see it in verse 44, there's at least 5,000 probably more, maybe closer to 10,000. Uh, if we're, if we're estimating with women and children, whoever else is there, I don't know, but the men are 5,000 um, that are here. And the apostles say, we can't do that. Um, so Jesus does it. Uh, he says, get the food that you have, um, find how much bread that you, that you do have. And they end up finding five loaves of bread and two fish. Um, and so Jesus separates them all out, puts them in groups. He blesses the food. And I don't know, this is one of the miracles that I wish I could have seen. Um, another interesting fact is this is one of the only miracles, uh, one of two miracles that all four gospels record. Uh, the other miracle is the resurrection. Um, but this is an important miracle. It illustrates a powerful point that Jesus is capable of of providing sustenance. And in John 6, he makes the point, I am the bread of life. I am the sustenance that you need. Um, but man, I wish I could have seen this because I've always wondered, like, how did that happen? Was he like, were they like breaking off a piece of bread and then the bread's like spontaneously growing back? Or like, was it just like duplicating? Like, and he like broke it and it made two loaves and he broke it and it made two more loaves. And I, I wonder how it happened. Um, but regardless of what happened, a huge number of people are fed and satisfied and full from five loaves and two fish. And at the end of it all, they take up 12 baskets worth of extra food. <laughs> so they have more at the end than what they began with. Um, what are some of the things, what, what are some of the lessons to learn from that? Or, or what do you want to talk about in that miracle, Scott? Your mic's muted. I'll throw this out because it's kind of humorous. There's a Chinese place up here that has a pad thai dish. <laughs> it's just so crammed full. Luke and I will be eating it and eating it and eating it and, and then it's it's still full. <laughs> um, but maybe one lesson is to realize the blessings from God. Uh, it, it's not like they run out. Mm -hmm. Now we can abuse them and we can make ourselves be non-recipients of them. But kind of like the gospel, if you share the gospel with people, it, it, it's if this the sower in the story of the sower sowing the seed, there would be a finite amount of seed in its bag. But the blood of Christ doesn't run out. Just yeah. because you've used the blood of Christ doesn't mean there's not enough for somebody else. Mm -hmm. Um the blessings of God keep giving. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. Mm -hmm. Yeah, another interesting thing to notice in the story is um, Jesus uses the really seemingly small amount of, of possessions from the crowd to do something really amazing. And I think there's a maybe smaller lesson in that with us that Jesus can use the seemingly small things that we bring to the table and accomplish really great things with them. Um, that, that's a maybe a theme throughout scripture that we should not despise small things. Zechariah 4 says, do not despise the day of small things. Um, God is able to work his purposes 
even in the seemingly more insignificant things. And that's maybe a more powerful lesson in some of the other accounts. Uh, a lot of people will, I think the primary focus of this miracle is that Jesus is the bread of life that he can provide. But some of the other gospel accounts will say that they got the food from a little boy. Um, it was the little boys, five loaves and two fish. So not only is it a small amount of food, but it's a small person. And Jesus can take that and do something really amazing with that. And it's the same thing in our lives, um, that he can, he can accomplish his purposes and his will um, if we just give what we have to him. Um, and that's cool to see him able to do that. Um, I want to read this next story because I think it has to do with the five loaves and two fish, the feeding of the 5,000. Um, so verse 45 says, immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go on before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after, they had taken leave, after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on land. And when he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them, at about, and about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea, and he meant to pass by them. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts, hearts were hardened. All right, so the next phase in the, in the story, um, Jesus sends his apostles on, sends the disciples on before him, get back in the boat, we're going to go back to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, and Jesus dismisses the crowds. He takes a little bit of time to himself in prayer on the mountain, and in the middle of the night, says the fourth watch of the night, which I have a note that says that's between 3 and 6 a.m., so right in the middle of the night, Jesus can see where, they're at, where the apostles are at out in the sea. They're having trouble fighting against the wind in the sea. They're kind of stuck in the middle, and so Jesus is going to walk past them. Um, it's interesting in uh, verse 48 that it mentions he meant to go, to go past them, but uh, while he was walking past them, maybe not directly towards the boat, but kind of parallel with it, uh, the apostles see him, and they're terrified. They think it's a ghost, and Jesus calms them down, says, don't worry, it's just me, and he gets in the boat, and there's two incredible things that happen. First, in this story, Jesus is walking on water. If you ever tried to walk on water, it's not very easy. <laughs> um, defies a lot of of you know the laws of physics and different things but Jesus does it and then he gets in the boat and immediately the wind stops um, another similar story is when Jesus calms the, the storm when he's asleep in the boat but he, you know he illustrates again he has power to control the the elements of nature and the apostles are amazed they're utterly astounded by that um, when the wind ceases and Mark makes an interesting note and I want to talk about this a little bit and see what you think Scott he says they were utterly astounded because in verse 52, they didn't understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. Um, I think the loaves he's talking about is the story right before this, the five loaves and the two fish and it multiplying. So why does Mark bring that up here? What's, what's his point? What's he trying to say that the apostles aren't getting? I'm not sure how much they didn't understand. Mark says they didn't understand. Did they not get it at all? Did they not notice? Wow, that little bitty amount, you know, 
fed all those people and then all these baskets full left over? Or was there something about it they didn't understand? Yeah, and how I maybe kind of see it and, and comparing that story of the feeding of the 5,000 with the other gospels, it looks like everyone knew something amazing had happened uh, here that Jesus had done something really incredible. John gives more details about what happened immediately after that when Jesus starts teaching that really hard teaching that you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood and everyone kind of leaves. And then Jesus says, are you going to leave too? And Peter and the apostles say, where are we going to go? We know you have the words of eternal life. So they at least know Jesus has great power after that miracle. But what I kind of think is maybe going on is the apostles aren't really understanding the greatness of Jesus, like the totality of his greatness. Like, yeah, he can, he can cure sick people. Yeah, he can multiply bread and fish. But when he does something new, it's like, wow, he can do that too. I, I, didn't, I didn't know that he could do that. I didn't think that he could do that kind of thing. Um, and they don't understand that Jesus has control over everything, that he is the creator, that he is the supreme Lord over all of creation. And it's just this slow kind of learning process. And I think maybe we can find ourselves in that similar type of situation where we maybe compartmentalize Jesus's abilities or his power and think, yeah, Jesus can handle my sins, but Jesus doesn't, he's not able to help me get through my stress or anxiety today or something like that. Like, yeah, Jesus can, you know, raise someone from the dead. Um, but I'm really, you know, frustrated and, and, and Jesus can't help me overcome my frustration or my anger or, or whatever it is. Like Jesus can do this, but he can't do that kind of thing. It seems like that's maybe what the apostles are kind of thinking here. They don't understand that if Jesus can do one of these really amazing miracles, he can do anything. Um, all things are possible with God, like Jesus would say. Um, so go ahead, Scott. I may overstate this, but I think there's something to it. Uh, it seems when Jesus does miracles on the Sea of Galilee or relative to fishing, it was a little bit more impactful on some of the apostles because they were fishermen. Sure. Uh, you know, if you're, if you're a brick mason and you see somebody do something, wow, that was cool, that was cool, that was cool. But suddenly, you know, a hundred thousand square foot building it's completely brick. It's like, you know what it takes to brick a building. You know. And it, yeah. So, for instance, over in Luke, in Luke 4, Jesus is healing people. Peter is there when Jesus heals Peter's mother-in-law. But when Jesus says, put the nets out, and he says, well, we've been fishing all night, there's nothing, but if you say, don't do well, and suddenly the nets are ripping. Peter is astounded. Yeah. And he's like, get away from me, I'm a simple man. Um, it's, and, and when the apostles say, who is this? Because they, they're used to the Sea of Galilee. And when that thing got kicking up and the storms and stuff, they know the power of that sea. And somebody that can control that sea that they spent their livelihood on. Somebody that can control the fish under the sea that was their livelihood. That seems sometimes to impact them, yeah, especially stronger because it's it's their wheelhouse and they know that power. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point, yeah, and I like that point. That and that maybe goes along with the idea of you know we can we can appreciate Jesus's power and his greatness from afar, but when it becomes personal. Um, 
it it hits a little bit closer to home you know it's like wow that's what jesus can do um kind of thing but but we should know if if jesus can do something really amazing far out there he can do something really amazing in our lives personally too um and that's what he's constantly trying to teach throughout his ministry so all right cool um well that gets us through verse 52 um so we'll stop right there time's up for today uh and the next time that we're in the gospel of mark we'll finish up chapter six and move into chapter seven so uh, thank you, Scott, for uh, doing that with me and to our audience for tuning in. If you have any questions or thoughts about what we've discussed today or anything else you'd like us to discuss on our show, like I said, you can visit our website, BibleQuest.tv, and we'll be happy to answer your questions in our future shows. But that's all that we have for this week. So we'll see everyone next week, Lord willing.